Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. And some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend, legend became myth. That's from Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien. As those that listen to the TeamCast know, for the past many years, I've been doing applied research on how people learn to navigate uncertainty. Along this journey, I encountered and have been attempting to understand how to overcome the tacit knowledge transfer problem. This is the problem of knowing how to ride a bike, but being unable to explain it to anyone else. Or as the researcher Michael Polanyi would state, we know more than we can tell. I've always looked at this problem from one of skill development. How can we help our students, candidates, probies, etc., accelerate their ability to both know and understand what it is to be in the burning building, in surgery, in combat, etc.? How do we get them there quicker? Recently, however, I encountered a different facet of this complex problem in my ongoing conversations about risk and uncertainty. To help understand what I mean, let me share the problem that I'm currently staring at. Imagine for a moment that you're a medical student. On May 21st, you're going to graduate from a classroom learning environment. Two months later, you're going to enter the operating room learning environment. This is not just a transition from the theoretical to the applied. It is also a transition from the ordinary world into the extraordinary world, which we know from mythology. For the learner, this means that your ingrained habits of learning, stress tolerance, teamwork, communication will all need to be rebuilt while you enter a highly kinetic and consequential social ecosystem. You will suddenly no longer be measured by your test scores, but by patient survival rates. Your conversations will range from the cordial to the aggressive to the hostile and back again all within a few minutes over and over again and again every day. Every day, you'll be developing your professional reputation, even though the way you see yourself is changing, your own identity is changing as you spend more time in the extraordinary world, and you'll rarely ever get the chance to retake a test. When I asked the hospital leadership how they're helping medical professionals make this transition from the ordinary to the extraordinary, from the theoretical to the applied, they respond by telling me they'll just figure it out as we did. The problem, however, is that some of them are not figuring it out. This problem is not just faced by medical students, but on any individual who joins what we call a tactical swarm or cross-functional team or next team to resolve rapidly emergent complex adaptive problems. This problem of having to learn why you need to do something while simultaneously learning how to do something is called the why-how problem in learning. To put it in perspective, consider this. Traditionally, military boot camps train people on how to do things like shoot, move, and communicate without explaining the why they are doing those things until later in their career. Conversely, at the same time, medical students educate their people on the principles of why you do something, biology, physiology, chemistry, etc., without telling them how to do those things until they enter their residency or the first few days in their job. What I'm trying to figure out is how do we develop someone who needs to be trained and educated in the face of an immersion event right away? How do we get somebody to bridge both of these skills, training for certainty, education for uncertainty, so that they can succeed in a rapidly emergent, extraordinary world? 
And what does normal look like there? I spent a few years training lifeguards and rescue divers. I tell you this because in that time, I made four deep water rescues. This means that both myself and the person drowning were in water above our heads. In those moments, as those of you who've done this, you know that there is no plan, no normal. There's only chaos, terror, and scrambling violence, along with a genuine chance both I and the person I'm trying to save will both die. It's all about your training. It's all about your your ability to anticipate future events and try to keep your, your wits about you, as they say. It is one of the purest examples of a true immersion event that I've ever experienced. Telling a medical student what their expectations should be or what normal is supposed to look like is a tricky proposition in the same way that I might explain to someone or try to explain to someone who wants to become a lifeguard what to expect when they first grapple with a terrified human in deep water. Logically, you might understand and actually think you understand, but you won't. Neither did I until it was over. To try to bridge this gap and help people understand what I'm talking about, I've been working on this story. It goes like this. Imagine that you're sitting in a huge empty airplane hangar. You're with a group of friends and family waiting for someone to arrive on a private plane. The plane is delayed and there's no internet or cell service, so you're left to stare into the distance or talk with your neighbor or read a book you may have brought along to pass the time, an expression we seem to use less and less these days. Then you suddenly see someone quickly approaching the hangar to come speak with you. As they get closer, they inform you that in a few minutes, a group of people will be arriving to draw a clear plastic sheet across the middle of the hangar, separating the hangar into two equal-sized spaces. You can stay where you are, and nothing on your side of the hangar will change. It is a huge curtain of thick plastic, and they'll seal it on all sides. So while you can see through it clearly, you cannot hear or smell what is happening on the other side of the curtain. The stranger then tells you that there's been a mass casualty incident a few blocks away. A building has collapsed, and they will bring all of the collapsed victims to the other side of the curtain to be triaged before being sent to the appropriate hospital. The stranger then leaves, and the injured begin to arrive along with an army of medical workers and medical equipment. Every kind of injury you can imagine enters that space. For most people in your group, standing in the ordinary world and peering through that thick plastic into the extraordinary world, the horror will be too much, and they will turn away or leave the hangar entirely. They do not want to know what happens in that world, and that's fine. But next to you, however, is a researcher who studies triage all their life. They got a doctorate in it, and they're watching, and they look over on the other side of the curtain, and they say, that isn't really the way you should do that. After years of research, even though they have not had any medical experience, they're not a medical doctor, have not done surgery and triage, uh, they're utterly confident in their researched opinions. Next to them, however, is a military combat veteran who was a medic in a war. And they say, well, actually, I've been where they are, and what they're actually doing wrong is that over there. Except that the person was last in combat 10 years prior, and much is different between now and then. And memory has a way of changing the color and tone and volume of things. Next to them, however, is your crazy cousin who loves to research on the internet and watches a lot of movies who states with total confidence that looks like chaos and someone should take leadership. They should take charge in there. This goes on like this with each successive person critiquing those on the other side of the curtain with a smug assurance of those who do not have to enter the arena. In that moment, if I were to try to explain to these people that the other side of the curtain is actually another reality where time and space move differently, they would just stare at me for the most part. They would point out that it is the same building, the same gravity, the same air, the same roof, the same materials, and they are well-studied and have vast experience in this subject. They believe the only thing separating them from what is happening on the other side of the hangar is a sheet of plastic, but of course it is much more than that. 
They don't hear the whispered plea of the dying mother or the anguished sob of a new nurse or the screams and the whimpers. They don't smell the blood. They don't smell the cauterized wounds. In telling that story, one of the things I begin to wonder is whether we have somehow lost some of the old words we used to all know. The words that describe the places between and betwixt the chaos and what we falsely believe is safe. The old words and the old stories that allowed us to understand what it is to move back and forth between the ordinary and the extraordinary world. Now let's return to the medical student. In a few weeks after they graduate, they'll be crossing from one side of the hangar to the other, from the ordinary world to the extraordinary world. They'll be getting into the water with a drowning person. Intellectually, we can only prepare them so far because in a large part of their coming experience won't be intellectual. It will be emotional. So what do we do? How do we help these medical students or any teams transition from the ordinary to the extraordinary world so they can be successful the first day or more successful the first day because we have a vested interest in making sure they do? Because in terms of medical students, the people they're going to be working on are us and our families. It turns out that our brain is wired in such a way that it is easier to remember concepts in the forms of symbols and stories, and that may be one way forward to helping them. As I strive to help teams learn to navigate uncertainty in this new age of rapid change and increasing uncertainty, we once again find ourselves in need of the old stories. We once again must find a way to gather around the fire and retrieve the tools we once had to understand that which cannot be understood. We once again need the words and stories that help us experience the emotions that come with crossing between realities, so we're not dealing with emotions on day one. Those stories which may help us cross from the ordinary world into the extraordinary one and back again are needed more than ever. It is not enough to write these words and stories within a textbook for a student to read in isolation, because knowledge alone isn't the solution and it's not entirely the problem. These words and stories must be spoken aloud creating connection and belonging for the alchemy to succeed. The problem is that the spoken words and the stories once so common and intimate have now become suspicious strangers or worse, whimsical mythology to be dismissed as unserious. We must now find the words that will be the tools used to navigate this new age of uncertainty. We must retrieve them from myth and legend and make them real once again. To help us in this conversation, this journey, to sort of think about the role that story plays and people's ability to transition from the ordinary world to the extraordinary world, I am joined by two friends of mine who are sort of leading authorities in the world on on the subject of the role that story and storytelling plays in making meaning of the world. The first person I'd like to introduce is Dr. Angus Fletcher. He's an English professor and faculty within Project Narrative at Ohio State. He holds dual degrees in neuroscience from the University of Michigan and literature from Yale and is the author of an amazing book called Wonderworks, the 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature. Angus, thanks very much for joining us. I'm so honored to be here, Preston. Thank you. And the second person who many of you may know is Claire Murphy, who is the Mission Critical Team Institute Director of Story. Claire, as you may know, is a professional storyteller who tells myths, folklore, and history. Claire performs throughout the world in front of audiences. Diversity stretches from NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Pasadena, to the National Theater of London. And her role here at Mission Critical Teams is to help operators make that transition to become instructor cadre by supporting their ability to leverage storytelling in instruction. So welcome, Claire. Thanks very much, Preston. Delighted to be here with you both. 
So after listening to the preamble, you you all know why we're here, and I'm going to go, jump right in it and just ask for a little bit of background, and we'll start with you, Angus, and just say, how have stories been used in the past to help bridge this chasm between the ordinary world and the extraordinary world? So in the past, back when our earliest stories were told, the extraordinary world was much closer to the ordinary world. Humans had not managed to create these civilizations of technology which stretched over the entire earth. You could just walk out your front door and be confronted with nature, be confronted with the storm, and be confronted in your mind with what might be a god who might shatter your reality and take from you everything you had generated in your entire life. So grief was there, trauma was there, hardship was there, fear was there, but also joy was there, hope was there, courage were there. All these things were really on the doorstep, much more so than they are now. And that's why when you look back at ancient stories, they do a couple of things very powerfully to help us transition over that threshold into the extraordinary world. The first thing is most of our ancient stories going back through Homer and then all the way back through Sumer are typically what we call epics. And epics present us with an extraordinary world, a world that is older than the world that the story listeners themselves are inhabiting. And when we nowadays, we think of extraordinary worlds, we might think of science fiction worlds or fantasy worlds or worlds filled with like lots of magic or kind of weird things. But really the defining quality of an epic is simply that the other world is bigger. It is filled with lives that are larger than our own. There are people in it. There are heroes who are just physically bigger. There are trees, there are skies, there are suns, there are animals, which are just bigger. And that seems a very simple thing, but psychologically, when you see something bigger, what that does in the human brain is it produces this effect known as the stretch, which stimulates awe, wonder. It's the beginning of spiritual experience. It's why so many of us imagine gods just as bigger versions of ourselves. In that moment, your ego starts to recede. And your heart opens, you have this experience of compassion, oftentimes curiosity, and that allows you to enter into the other space with less fear, more openness, more willingness to take it on, and less of a need to understand or control it. And so that's the very first and important thing, just to make our brain more able to access that other space. The other thing about ancient stories is that they were largely oral. And so in oral storytelling, what's happening is a moment of co-creation. Oral storytelling isn't just a poet (laughs) repeating something that she has memorized, like a book repeating the same words over and over and over again. It's a dynamic process where the poet sees the effects of her words and her storytelling on the audience and changes and adapts. And so the the audience and the poet come together to create the story together. Well, why does that matter? Well, what that means is that as an audience member, you're always engaging in a dynamic, evolving relationship. You're helping to make the world. You're more active. You're not just being told a story. And that's why when you enter into the other space through oral storytelling, you yourself become activated. You yourself become dynamic. And so you go into that space prepared to help remake that space and engage with that space and change that space and transform that space. And so all of that boosts psychologically your self-efficacy and helps generate in you the belief that you are not just a passenger in life, but you are a maker. 
Man, that was, that was, I have so many things. That's, that stuff is sort of amazing. And one of the things I just want to, before I switch to Claire, one of the things that I just want to circulate back on that's super exciting is that as you use words like wonder, fear, control, but also the co-creation, right? And just to remind our audience who've listened to the team cast, when you think back on the history of risk, for example, the word adventure was taken out in the 1600s. And that word literally means to dare, adventure means to dare. And it was the, it was a time in the world where risk was not something that you just received, but it was something that you could volunteer to engage with, that you could enter into the world, but not from a place of fear and reaction, but from a place of wonder and exploration. And so what's so powerful to me about what you're saying is this acknowledgement of the fact that as we navigate the uncertainties of the world, we are both experiencing that which is coming towards us and we are making choices in the face of uncertainty. And we can do so from a place of wonder and we don't have to do it from a place of fear. When you hear a good story, it makes you want to go someplace. It makes you want to go on the journey, not just watch the journey, but walk on the journey. And I think we've all had that experience of a powerful story where someone starts telling us the story of their life or something they've seen, and we want to go there. And I think a lot of us see that, you know, sometimes now with world events, when we see powerful storytellers, we want to leave our living rooms and we want to enter the action. And that is the power of story is to open the heart with courage and purpose and joy And, you know, we live in an age now, I think a lot of times we think of story as a way of controlling people and making them feel certain things, a kind of marketing device, making them feel fear, buy, buy, buy. But the original power of story is the opposite, is to activate our hearts. And in our hearts is courage, courage, the French word, right? For blood, for heart. And by firing the blood, by firing the heart, it empowers us to step into the places where before we were too scared to go. Yeah, and I just, uh, I want to now bring Claire into this conversation because I think this idea of of stories, not as influence, but as inspiration, right, as activation, really, really matters, right? Because as we navigate and enter ourselves into uncertainty, it does provoke a lot of emotions, right? So doing so with intention, with a feeling of courage, really matters. And so, for Claire, from your experience and, and your long study of story, how does what Ingus is, is saying resonate with you, or what have you seen from your experiences? I mean, I just, I love what you're saying, Angus. So it makes me think of something Karen Armstrong wrote in her brilliant book, A Short History of Myth, where she talks about the Enuma Elish, the Sumerian epic that was recited, right? And, you know, she talks about, you know, the story itself, but she talks about the telling of it. It might happen at a, at a wedding or at a new year, but she said it would often happen at a time of crisis, And it would happen in the same way, as still happens in certain parts of the world, where everybody would gather and the storyteller or poet would get up and they would begin. And everybody knew the story, but they needed to go through it, like you're saying, because as they listen to it, they become active and they hear these impossible stories about men and women going up against monsters, about gods ripping apart landscapes, impossible things, impossible challenges. And they come through the end of it and they have the catharsis. And they know in that moment, in that larger space, you talked about it as a larger space. I think of it as the mythic space, right? Where we are small and the and the archetypal space is enormous. And in that moment, they're given the courage to say it is possible. And I think what's interesting as we've come into this, this century is we've become so literal 
about our myths and we've tried to figure out what does that mean you know what did that mean what does that monster mean and it's like well actually the the purpose of that journey to go into that other space is as you're saying encourage to to take heart to have heart and you're talking about this activation and I've seen some really strange things in my time of being in service to story being mentored by story I have seen things that I I just could not have anticipated happening where I walk into a situation in a school and there's a kid who hasn't spoken in four years and through the workshop he started talking to me and the teacher wanted to know what I had done and I said I just asked him a question he's a selective mute because he had seen a trauma four years earlier and had chosen not to speak but something happens in this larger space I'm thinking of another kid I saw who listened to stories for an hour and, you know, he'd come from another country, he'd been through a traumatic, like some serious trauma to get, and he's only six. And yet within that hour, the teacher saw him have more emotions and responses in that hour than she had seen all year. So there's something, there's an expanded self that happens when we occupy story space. And I think that ties back to what you're talking about, Preston, with you know, when we occupy these spaces where there are intense situations happening and time and space is changed. So I'm not saying they're the same, but there are strengths in both places that maybe act as parallels to each other. And because we're in the 2022 and we have lost the habit of gathering, we've lost the habit of sitting and listening to story. We get all our stories digitally and through screens. There is something lost. That active co-creation that Angus talks about, that activism, the, the person is activated to dream and think and be far beyond what they think is possible, does not happen in other spaces to the same degree. So cinema and theatre and novels, they, they're great, but there is something in oral transmission that doesn't exist anywhere else. And it's, it's what Angus talked about. It's the act of co-creation. So you could develop somebody's psyche. I mean, Einstein said it, right? He said, if you want your kid to be smart, tell them, tell them fairy tales. If you want your kid to be really smart, tell them more fairy tales. Obviously, he said children, I say kid because I'm paraphrasing. But there's a, there is a stretching that happens of the psyche when you allow yourself to go on that journey and encounter gods and encounter. I mean, there's so many stories about traveling to the underworld, traveling to the other side of things, traveling to places where time and space don't operate by the same parameters. And when you come back from that, you come back changed, you come back transformed, you're not better or worse, you're different. And I find a lot of echoes in that to the work you're doing at MCTI, Preston. Angus, I want to get your thoughts on this in just a moment, but I want to ground the audience once again in what we're talking about, right? So I want to put this in really pragmatic terms. You are a medical student who's been sitting in a classroom for 18 years. You graduate on May 21st. In two months' time, you'll be in surgery with a scalpel in your hand, right? So you have to find, right, you have to go through the catharsis to understand that the person you think you are now could be that person, right? You have to ha- you have to actually sort of start to stretch and see yourself to do that, right? And part of it is about connection and belonging. Part of it is about having your imagination awakened in such a way that you could actually see yourself doing that, that is possible. And right now, independent solo thought exercises, intellectual exercises might get you to the skill of it, but not necessarily to the emotion of it. And so Angus, you know, I'm just going to open it up to you to reflect on anything Claire might've said or new thoughts you have, but also this idea 
of as this student is trying to move from the ordinary world to the extraordinary world, to the person they used to be, to the person they know they're going to become and know that their world would be different afterwards. And they're in a process of trying to make meaning of this transition, of this experience. In your opinion, what role does story play in that? Well, it can play a very powerful role. And you know, the most basic thing you can do if you're in that position is to ask other people who have gone there and done those things what their stories are. Ask them to share their stories with you and then just listen to those stories. Listen to them without judgment and listen to them without fear. And don't feel that you necessarily have to put yourself in their place or understand everything that they're doing because your deep brain can process those stories. And what those stories are doing when you're being given them by somebody else who's been on that other side is they're nesting in your head. And then when you start to make that transition yourself, they'll start to come back into your head and they'll start to make sense in that moment. So going back to what Claire said about how we live in this world, where we're always trying to understand what myths mean and so on and so forth. Actually, what a myth is, is a tool that you want to put in your head and keep in your head for when you need it. And a story of a doctor who's been in that situation is a story that you want to put in your head and keep there for when you need it. You don't need to try and analyze it or overthink it, but just store it in your head. And then when you get into that shock situation or that situation where all of a sudden things are happening at a different speed, that story will come back. That story will calm you. That story will help you make sense of that moment as long as you've done that work of putting it in your head prior to the experience. I think what's so interesting about that, right, is that there's a certain amount of, and we've talked about on this team cast and in other places about the default mode network, the sort of supercomputer in the back of your brain, right? And that part of your brain is trying to process big parts of your life and make meaning in the background to kind of normalize whatever's going on. That's one of many things it does. But what's interesting about the way you just described that myth is that there's a way of thinking where you, by putting this myth in your head and letting it sit there, that as you encounter these radically uncertain or unknown events, that to your point, the default mode network can go to the shelf with the myth on it and go, okay, well, it's it's actually not that crazy. There's a reference point here. It's not like aliens are landing, right? There, other people have gone down this path because other people have gone down that path and described these experiences, Then, then there is a way for me to do it. And so it is that sort of guardrails or handrails to help you on that the metaphorical bridge. Is that a fair way of saying that, Angus? Yeah, absolutely. And just to make it super neuroscientific, I mean, what a story is, is it's just a sequence of actions. And those actions just play in the motor parts of your brain. And when you're in a situation where you don't need that story, where your motor regions don't need to play that story, they're not going to play it. So when you're in the ordinary world, they have no need for the extraordinary story. That's just going to create problems for them. But the moment they cross that boundary, it can slip in. And without you having to think about it, just in the way that your default mode network is largely non-conscious, it can just plug into your motor regions and start to activate them and start to move them. And that's really the most important thing when you're in their transitional moments is to keep moving. Keep moving, keep going, keep being open. And those stories will automatically do that as long as they're there because they have knowledge in motion, knowledge in action already. So before I turn it over to Claire, what it's making me think of is 
in my life over many years, I've often had to transition from an urban environment or, or a suburban environment into a wilderness environment, all time types of year. And in the Northeast of the United States, if you spend enough time in the woods, enough time outside repeatedly overnight, you will develop for many people the ability to smell incoming snow. It tastes like iron. It tastes like metal on your tongue. And what will happen is, is that if I'm out in the winter, even to today, and I'm rolling around and I'm caught up in my head and I'm thinking like an urban person and I'm worried about all my stuff. And suddenly that sense awakens within me old memories and old stories of time in the cold in duration. And I will suddenly have access to a variety of memories and understandings, which I don't normally have access to. And they'll come to me and on something like, oh, right, this is my place in the world. This is my place in this situation. This is the world I now inhabit, right? And it will kill me if I let it, right? And so I am now in a different place in time, even though I'm on my same road in my same neighborhood. And so I just think about that, Angus, and I think about, you know, these moments where certain senses and certain experiences and certain guideposts, maybe even bones, right, in a, in a story will emerge and remind you of your of your place in the narrative, if that makes sense. I guess, is that a fair retelling of that? I think that's beautiful. And I think that's brilliant. And absolutely. Your non-conscious brain picks up on these environmental signals. It says, I've gone into a different world. It goes through its mental library of, you know, what world do I have in my head that matches the world out here? And then boom, you become a different person. You change in the space without actually having to think about it because that action is already in your head. I love it. So Claire, obviously anything you want to just reflect on and what we've been talking about, but I also want to let the audience know that you've been doing during COVID a lot of work with NHS in the UK on helping medical professionals use stories to process their experiences specifically in the age of COVID. And for those of you who may not be tracking this, you need to understand that COVID has had a really massive impact on healthcare around the world. And one of the impacts it's had is that teams that typically don't work even though they're in a hospital, they don't work in necessarily critical environments. They work in environments that are more long-term healthcare, where they're not running around and people are bleeding to death or about to die. And these folks who chose a life of more predictability were suddenly thrust into a world of constant unpredictability. And to make that transition, right, from what you are expecting to what is actually happening and to overcome some of those expectations, story has been helping to play a role. And just to comment on that and reflect on anything that we and Angus have been talking about. Yeah, I'm trying to capture all my excitement. So, Angus, as you were just talking, I I got this beautiful unfolding image in my head, which I think you're both really aware of, whether it's from Bruce Chatwin's book or or other sources of it. But, you know, many of the peoples in Australia, the Aboriginal Australians, and there are over 200 different peoples at least, talk about the song lines, right? And they talk about the the singing of the story as they move through the landscape and that the song itself is a map, a verbal vocal map that keeps them in right relationship to the landscape. And a lot of people from other cultures have tried to understand that and understand the dreaming, which is a place, you know, beyond time and space as we understand it. But as you were talking about the subconscious and about the stories rising up, it made me think that 
that's really what you're asking here, Preston, in terms of the medical community, in terms of that medical student making that journey over that transition over. Because Angus said, well, start asking for stories, right? Start getting stories from your elders and elders in the broadest sense of the word. People have been down that road. And as those stories start to nest in your subconscious, you're building a song line. I mean, that's that's just me taking your words and piecing them all together. And I think what's really important to, to point out, and it's not going to be the case with everybody listening to this, but a lot of people have resistance to story, have resistance to using story, have resistance to telling story in the medical world because they don't want to be seen as that guy or that girl who tells stories, right? Because it, it's synonymous with taking up too much space, talking about yourself, wasting time, and they're in time-pressured environments. But if we can flip that and start to see it as something incredibly valuable, and there's two sides to it, the stories from down the road that the medical student, as they transition over here, which will then, as you say, act as this reference point and this map as they move through various levels of chaos. But then there's also the stories that they need to tell as they have these experiences and don't know what to do with them. So that's just in the back of my mind there. And so it's it's important that, and your book does this really well, it's important that we name story what it, for what it is, which is a technology and a tool and a very powerful tool for transformation, not a soft skill, which is it's what it's often seen at, or as marketing, right? In terms of working with the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, which came from a provocation from you, Preston, about as the pandemic kicked off, it's been... Absolutely fascinating because like a lot of mission critical teams, they work really hard in a lot of really changing environments and they don't necessarily talk about what they do. So along comes Claire, the Irish storyteller, who's la 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 la, let's all sit around and tell stories, right? But really what I did was I opened the door and I and I issued an invitation to them. And it got picked up by quite a few people in the NHS who we're really at a loss as to what to do with what was happening. And there's still so much happening. And what's interesting about this crisis with this pandemic is it's, it's a reckoning for all of us to, to look at our behavior and see what do we need to change. So in these workshops, I brought people into a space. It was all done on Zoom. But what starts to come up wasn't necessarily the stories of the immediate trauma because I wasn't dealing with people right as they were coming into the pandemic would have been at least 12 months in. But they started to tell stories within these groups around some of them were telling stories about getting COVID. Some of them were telling stories about isolation. Some of them were telling stories about just aspects of their jobs that they never said out loud. And I know in some medical teams, they do have a debrief. They do have an after action review where everyone or someone talks. And so some sort of story is told. But more often than not, I think these stories just accumulate which speaks to your residue paper, Preston, around what do you do with all of that? And what started to happen as they started to open these up, and they only told maybe one or two short stories, immediately is the recognition of fellow humanity, is, is the fact that everyone else in the group had had a similar experience with COVID or with isolation or with losing someone or with you know dealing with suicide or whatever it was, and a lot came up. In those rooms so it immediately decreases isolation because as soon as you hear a story from somebody else you realize you've had some version of that so they realize they're not alone they realize they're not a freak for having had these experiences 
and they see their strengths reflected back. So when you're telling the story of an experience, you're never necessarily, you're not necessarily aware of what it is that you're showing us. You're just telling the story of what happened to you when you're really telling it, when you're really in it. And we, the listener, the co-creator, you know, we witness what's actually what you've done, what you've achieved, what, you know, all of those things. And that all got reflected back. And I think one of the things that I noticed in the pandemic is that they're all working really, really hard and not necessarily being witnessed much. So story is so powerful, but it has, it always has to have an active listener. That's a really important piece of it. I mean, Mandela knew that in South Africa with the truth and reconciliation piece, you know, so there has to be, there has to be both, but yeah, the work is fascinating. And I think the piece that is important is that they're starting to see that, that this is useful. And then they're starting to think wider of how do we use narrative? Because I think there was a little bit of tokenistic gestures around resilience at the start of the pandemic, like just go talk to someone, you know, this kind of, here's a poster, go talk to someone where storytelling is much more human. It's much more community-based and it's much more achievable in a very short space of time. So I've planted some seeds to get people talking and there seems to be a real hunger for more. Nice. I kind of want to highlight some of the things you just said, right? Which is when I talk to people about storytelling as, as a mechanism of instruction, as a tool of instruction, they often hurt, interpret what I'm saying is storytelling as broadcasting, which is I'm just transmitting. But if you watch your audiences or if you watch a parent telling a child a bedtime story, it is not a passive reception. The people who are listening are not just sitting there stone-faced, right? There is emotional engagement, right? There is what Angus was talking about before, which is this co-creation in both the storytelling and the imagination of the receiver, right? And there's this back and forth that as any teacher will tell you as they read the audience and reflect off, the audience is going both ways, right? And that is that is influencing things. And one of the things I want to tell you that, that in related to what you just said is a friend of mine named Dr. Brent Bell, who's now at um, University. University of New Hampshire was at Harvard running their first year outdoor program and began looking at this question of why there was unusual attrition of students dropping out after their first semester at Ivy League colleges. And they they wanted to get after it. And he did a little bit of study and he found out that most students attending school in their first year, at least at this time in, in the world, has probably changed. They all thought they were sort of isolated. So there's this lack of connection and belonging. And they all thought that their worry was unique and weird, right? But it turns out if you do a survey of freshmen in the American universities, right, they all boil down to four fears. Will I make friends? Will I get good grades? What am I going to do about sex? And what am I going to do about drugs and alcohol? Like they all boil down to these four. So Brent introduced this idea where they were going to get all the freshmen together and do what's called fear in a hat exercise. So you get them all in a circle, there's 12 of them. You give them a piece of paper and a pen. You say anonymously in block lettering, we want you to write down what you're afraid of right now. And so what ends up happening, they do it. They say, okay, now we're going to pass the hat. We're going to bring it out. And everyone's going to collectively help coach each other on what we should do with this fear. Well, after they get to the six or seven response, they start to see the repetition everyone's has that aha moment like oh everyone is afraid of this like we're all afraid of this and it's that notion of story as as community as story as connection and belonging story as the surfacing of our anxieties and making them plain so that people can make meaning of their own lived experience right and 
I think it's just super, super powerful. Angus, I want to bring you in before I ask your question and, and just say, is there, how is this resonating for you or, or if there's things you could add from your research or experience? Well, I mean, I think this is beautiful. And absolutely, this is correct that story is the way we make sense of our lives, but also this submerging of fear. I mean, that is the thing that really shatters most of our lives is we have these deep fears. Fear activates ego. That ego isolates us from others and disempowers us. And the power of story is to take an emotion and move it in a direction. And so you're not just sitting with it, you're moving with it in a direction. And that allows you to explore what happens. And so if you have a fear, you can say, well, where does this fear go? And then you can start to see, well, maybe actually this fear exhausts itself, or maybe this fear actually connects me with someone. And maybe that makes us into a team or or a group. And we can start to kind of go forward on this adventure together. And the, the deep thing about story, because Claire has brought this up, and I know people often think about story as a waste of time, or they also might think of it as a fiction or a lie or actually something that is completely a misdirection from fact and the truth. But the main thing about story is story is action. Action is cause and effect. That's what happens in the brain when you have an action. Is It's a cause and an effect. And so the moment you start telling stories, you start saying, what is the cause of this? And what is the effect of this? And that puts you in a position where you can start to think more deeply about why. Why did this happen? And what can I do about it? And why would it matter if I did that about it? And so the core thing there really is that story is just another word for power. Story is power. Story is something that you take to change your world, to change your own emotional landscape. And, you know, the number one thing I always try and say to people, because we live in a world where we think of story as a way to control, manipulate other people. What matters is the story you tell yourself. Story is your way of reshaping your own emotions, not about controlling another person's emotions. And if you're in a grief situation, being able to tell your grief is being able to take ownership of your grief, is being able to process your grief and move through your grief and then help other people with their grief. Because the most empowering thing you can do with grief is tell your story, not just because it makes you feel less alone, because it makes that other person feel less alone. And it allows you to help lift them up. And it allows you to be their hero and their strength and their pillar. And so just in this basic way, story is your human power to reshape the direction of your life. And so at any moment you feel isolated or alone or overwhelmed by emotions, nothing drives story more than emotion. So know that no matter how overwhelming those emotions are, and no matter how negative those emotions are, you can always tap into them through story and convert them into a different direction. Yeah, it's what you're saying just deeply resonates with me, right? And it's it's deeply uh, embedded in our work on residue, right? And that, and as listeners to TeamCast will know, what we will often say is that in almost every case, and I say almost because there are exceptions, if we think back to things like Viktor Frankl's work on man's search for meaning, right? You can take the most most abhorrent experiences that a human can have. And at some level, at some point, there will be a choice. There will be a choice that you will make, and it will be you, that makes a choice that this will be trauma or this will be wisdom, right? This will be the thing that destroys me, or this is the thing that will grow me to be the person that can be of service to the world, right? And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's like a quick decision. I'm saying it's a process, but it is still 
owned by your own free will. It is not something that someone can do to me without my permission. I'm not in any way diminishing the amount of trauma that might have happened, but I'm not, I am saying, and I'll say it this way, and I've written a paper on this called There's Never One Fatality, right? And what I mean is that is that there's always one fatality followed by dead dreams, dead marriages, dead careers, dead jobs, dead, dead, sometimes dead people. And that we can't always do anything about the first fatality, but through story and through making meaning of our experiences, we can often, often prevent the follow-on fatalities. I just say that because I think, Angus, what you just said is, is just really powerful. Yeah. And, you know, trauma is very complicated, comes in many different yep. types, but a yep. couple of different types. I mean, you know, one thing that's important to remember is, is a lot of trauma is our body's own self-defense mechanism. Yeah. A lot of our own deep fears are created by our own mind to protect us. So they're actually our mind's way of trying to help us. And so trauma isn't actually outside in the world. It's something that's inside us and it's there to help us. And if it's not helping us, if our body created it and it's not helping us, we can go in and we can start to reprocess it and think, how can I help myself better? It was there in the moment and it was a good thing in the moment because it helped get me out of that situation or helped me break away. But now it's in my power to reshape that memory. A lot of other trauma can sometimes be the result of a shocking event that exists in kind of narrative fragments in your brain. And you, you just go through this moment. You don't know why all these things happen. It's almost like a bomb went off in your mind and you can't put it together. And story can help you say, no, this led to this, led to this, led to this, led to this, led to this. And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, was that really true? Did that really happen? What matters to the brain is not truth, but honesty. And if your own honesty, if your own sincerity, you think that is what has happened, you can reorganize those experiences. And the main thing there is, is not that the memory will go away, but that it will stop being obtrusive. And, and, I, and I, I just always want to say this to people. I mean, you know, when you work through therapy, that doesn't mean that when you think back to that experience, it won't be painful. That doesn't mean erasing that memory. It just means that that memory isn't popping into your head all the time when you don't want it there or when you're thinking about something else. And stories can be a way of tying together all those different fragments and then putting them in a place in your head where then you have control over when you activate them or not. Yeah. And you can go back to that trauma. You can go back to it. You can process it in your own time, but it's not interrupting your sleep or interrupting your time with family or interrupting your time with others. And that's really just the power of story in that way is to just give you control again over some of the things in your head that might otherwise be obtruding. I think it's really powerful, right? Because what I'll often say to people in this context is just be aware that what you don't control controls you in the context of these hurts, right? These things that you drag up, these inner monologues, these inner stories that you told, right? Are you telling the story or is the story being told to you? And that you have you have the authority, the right and the privilege, regardless of what's happened, to own your own pursuit of joy, Right. And it's in its most base fashion. But Claire, I want to just bring you into this because Angus and I've been talking about this. And I know that you've certainly done work in this area and just wanted a, a chance for you to comment. I often think of the, the veterans that I've worked with who've lost limbs and. One guy saying in the middle of a workshop on Zoom that he'd been really struggling with his PTSD. And when his PTSD kicks off, his, you know, his anger and different things come, you know, kick into high gear. Different story takes over. And his team, his PTSD team said to him, you seem much better lately. What are you doing? He said, I'm doing my storytelling workshops. 
It's like, we're not psychologists. We're not PTSD experts, but we sit there and we get them to order the story, just like Angus described, yeah. and put a shape on it. And the telling of it seems to release, seems to leach out some, some poison that is in there. But I want to I want to read you something, if I may, which is yep. just a book I found recently, which is Barry Lopez, who's written a ton of books. But he says... Stories do not give instruction. They do not explain how to love a companion or how to find God. They offer instead patterns of sound and association of event and image. Suspended as listeners and readers in these patterns, we might reimagine our lives. It is through story that we embrace the great breath of memory, that we can distinguish what is true and that we may glimpse, at least occasionally, how to live without despair in the midst of the horror that dogs and unhinges us. Yeah. And I mean, he spent a lot of time with oral storytellers, you know, when he traveled around, he traveled around the world. I suppose I find a lot of comfort in it. And that's what I want. I want people to do out there is to start using it more actively as a tool. I mean, there are a lot of people in medicine doing that, right? There's there's yep. Schwartz rounds and there's the Finding Meaning in Medicine groups that came out of Dr. Rachel Raman's work, the Rishi Foundation. So it's there. It's there on the periphery. But maybe, and the, uh, the Center for the Art of Medicine up in Minnesota has started a storytelling program for their medical students. So just to, to get them, while before they even start practicing, to get them in the practice of telling what yeah. is happening. So it's there, but maybe it's going to start moving more into the mainstream. So what's interesting, right, and, and this is going to bridge us to a question that, that's a little bit involved, so I want to explain it, is that over the years, I've been lucky enough and to encounter from time to time truly exceptional storytellers. They're usually a grandparent, quite honestly. And they're usually somebody that has been through a war or been through deprivation or been through something. And they've taken the time to process their experiences through stories that they can relate to us. And when I sit and listen to them, it is it is an otherworldly experience. I am transported and I am insanely jealous in their ability to, to create this movie theater in the mind, right? This theater of the mind that you're living in this place that you've never been to, but you can smell it while they're telling the story. And it's always extraordinary to me. And in the the last chapter of Angus's book, he has a section called The Vanished Teachers. And it was so provocative to me, this concept, because in my world, right, it deeply resonated with the fact that that from where I come from in North America, the tradition of oral storytelling is not present. It's not alive in the way that is alive, say, for the gypsies in, in Europe or the aboriginals in Australia or the Bushmen in Africa, right, that still carry on an oral tradition that's passed on. And not just not just the facts like go here, this is where the deer is, but but also the memories of the community that are passed down, that what is what is valuable and what is true for them that transcends the words that we have. And the problem is, is that from time to time, I will encounter a phenomenon that I realize that, that we have lost words to describe. And I, what I mean by that is this. If you go to a firefighter and you ask them how hot is hot, it will take them a little while to explain it to them. If you go to a, a mother who's just been labor in labor and ask how long is 60 seconds, it will take them a moment to explain it. The same with a boxer or somebody who is who's done rescue diving, right? These moments as 
Angus referenced in the very early that used to be part of our everyday lived experience that we have through modernity separated ourselves from so that they are not every day. And thank God, right? I don't need to be, I don't need to walk out my door and have to deal with wolves and bears, right? So I'm, I'm sort of grateful for that. But what it's done is it's disconnected us from certain truths that still remain, however rare. Right. And so it is my feeling, and I have no proof of this, but it's my feeling that somewhere along the way, our Western culture has lost certain words and certain stories to help us make meaning of and explain or or to understand or to create that myth that gives us those guardrails to help us transition from the ordinary world to the extraordinary world. And I was just so captivated by this concept of the vanished teacher and this concept of these lost words that end worlds that I thought it would be great just to hear, you know, Angus just sort of reflect on his thoughts about that, given that chapter and the things we've been discussing. Well, I mean, I think there has been a, a great mistake that we've made in the West where we think that when we write a story down, we keep it forever. I mean, this is the lie about writing and about text that somehow you can preserve the story completely in the words and it's there forever. And it's a well-meaning mistake because the reason that words and writing was invented in the first place is because we thought these stories were so important. We wanted to keep them forever. We wanted to write them down. And almost all of us have that experience in our lives. We hear something that's amazing. We want to write it down immediately and put it down in a piece of paper. But it's no longer alive on that piece of paper. And what ends up happening is that the world around it starts to change and then it no longer understands what the original meaning or intent or story was. And when you have oral storytelling traditions, what you just expressed so beautifully, Preston, is that a lot of times great storytellers, a lot of times they are older. And if they're not older, they've nevertheless learned this ability to dwell in the story, to take the time. Because Really, what makes a story effective, and you hear this all the time in the, in the stories that Claire tells, really what makes the story effective is the details. It's those tiny transitional moments, those specifics, that cinema in your mind that you were talking about, Preston. And we exist now in a world where we see stories are eight seconds long. Yeah. And even movies, the average amount of time before a cut in terms of when the camera cuts has shrunk from around 30 seconds to under eight seconds. So it's faster, 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 faster. And we're losing that dwelling time. And that dwelling time is important because that, as you were saying, Preston, is where the mind processes. And so even if the words are still there, they're not there anymore because we don't understand what they mean anymore. So that woman in labor could tell you the word and it would mean nothing to you. Right. It wouldn't communicate. And so I do think that what is happening here is there needs to be a kind of double process here. You know, first, we do need to start to become better listeners. We need to have more patience. We are a very impatient world. We like to have the facts and we like to be told what to do immediately. And we need to slow down. And the second thing is, is we need to encourage and nurture people to tell their own stories and to take their time over their own stories and to think really deeply about those stories. Because if that story is not told, then it is lost forever because when that life dies, the story is gone. And when we think about all the extraordinary stories in this world that have evaporated already, we should never want that to happen again. <laughs> we should want to hold on to them like other cultures do through their oral traditions. Because by holding on to them, we then allow ourselves to process these terrible, strange, 
unusual moments. I mean, I'm friends with Alison Gopnik. She's a professor at Berkeley. One thing she said to me recently was she said, Angus, how many people in this world have sat with another person as they died at peace? Yeah. We don't do that in our world anymore. Right. We don't sit at the bedside with someone we love and hold their hands as they die. We put them in hospitals. They die on their own. We see horrible, shocking death on TV. But none of us understand death as a moment of transition. None of us understand death as a healing story because we don't pause anymore to do that story anymore. And those are just, that's just one of the many, many moments I think we just don't have the patience anymore to tell. And I think we need to encourage more of those stories, more of those storytellers and more of those listeners. So it's interesting. We, we've been talking about stories for a little while, but we haven't actually told any stories. And, and I'm actually going to tell a story now, so you'll just have to bear with me. But as you were talking about dwelling, there was this very visceral memory that came up of a story I don't think I've ever told publicly, but I'll tell now. As many people know, I worked at the Wharton School for many years, helping to run the leadership program. And part of that, I had gotten to know Chief Pfeiffer, Chief Joe Pfeiffer at the FDNY. Chief Pfeiffer is the movie they made the 9-11 movie about. So Chief Pfeiffer happened to be doing a French documentary on the day that the planes hit the towers was actually captured by the documentary. And he was first at the base of the towers and he managed the event along with a lot of other firefighters. And there's a moment in the movie, right? Just to give you the full gravitas of this, where if you watch the movie, he glances over in the distance who he's glancing at is his brother. And he's the one who sent his brother up into the towers. He lived next door to his brother, right? And neither family got any word from either one of them for three days. And when he came home, he got out of the car by himself. And he had to explain that his brother wasn't coming back. He had died in the towers. So Joe Pfeiffer and I have known, Chief Pfeiffer and I have known each other for many years. And I asked him, or we were requested through Wharton for him to come and speak at the Wharton Leadership Conference. And I was his handler for that day. So my job was to make sure he had water and move him around and show him places. And while we were there, there was also an Air Force general. And Joe was revered and still is by many people for his work that day. They came up to me to ask if they could arrange a quiet meeting between Chief Pfeiffer and the and the Air Force general. And I said, of course. So we're up on the eighth floor of the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania. And I'm standing next to the Air Force handler, the person who's who's doing my role for the Air Force general. And I think he was a lieutenant colonel, perhaps. And we were just chatting, right? But his body language was very odd. Like he was very tense. And I was a little concerned, like maybe they were behind time or maybe something was out, was going on. And we're sitting there watching Chief Pfeiffer and this Air Force general chat. And this gentleman next to me, he leans over and in a very choked voice goes, I was the other one. And so what made me think of this, Angus, is this moment of dwelling. Because in this context, when a person next to you says a statement like that, it's not a statement that is, is transactional. It is a statement that opens up the possibilities of the extraordinary. And I felt myself viscerally reacting to it because like a lot of people, 9-11 wasn't something that happened to someone else. It happened to me, right? And so I turn and I look at him straight in the eye and I say, uh, uh, what do you mean? And he goes, when Joe Pfeiffer was at the towers, I was at the Pentagon. I had gone to get my team coffee and it was my team that was killed. So while Joe was at the tower, I was at the Pentagon. And these were two individuals, maybe the only individuals in the world that understood that role on that day, and they had never met. 
So I turned to him and I wasn't really sure what to do. I was at my own emotional reaction, but I thought, would you like to meet Joe Pfeiffer? And he's like, I would very much like to do that. So I grabbed, physically grabbed, probably not great, a couple of my staff. I said, here's what we're going to do. And I'll explain it all later. You're going to entertain the general for a few minutes and you're going to keep everybody else from these two. And they're going to have a quiet moment. And I'll explain the whole thing later. It's very important this happens. So if you need to throw your body on somebody, I would appreciate if you did that. And they were all great about it. And I remember this moment for the rest of my life as I made the introduction and backed up and I left them to their own conversation. I don't know what they talked about. But I remember this moment in history where these individuals, the only two individuals who would have understood the reality of that experience and what all the years that came after that, it was the first time they had to chat. And it was the first time that I had to sit and dwell with both watching that and reliving my own experiences about 9-11 and trying to make meaning of this and what it was like to both be them then and be them now, right, with the memories of all that came And so I think I just want to tell that story both to tell that story, but also because this concept of dwelling really resonates with me because I can also be impatient. But this moment of of recognizing that something of significance, of great significance is happening that you both want to record to be able to tell again so that others who couldn't be there like now could participate in, in quite honestly, this, this monumental moment right? And this idea of dwelling and trying to consume or, or experience or, or imbibe all of the things that are happening. And so I, I would open it up just to you, Angus, first, and then Claire. Well, I just want to say very briefly, Preston, that I am now dwelling. Yeah. Uh, and that is the power of your story is to yeah. have just touched me and moved me deeply into a space where I understand and can say nothing because, you know, that is the space of true understanding. I, 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 I'd like to hope. Yeah. Claire, yeah. thank you. Yeah. The word dwell is lovely. The word that I think is my version of it for years, Angus is inhabit. And Preston, as you inhabited that memory and for that moment, you're standing there as he leans in oh, yeah. and then I am standing there as he leans in. So I have a physical response. Yeah. And I think this is really vital because every sector, every team has their own language, their own jargon, their own acronyms, their own shorthand. And that's often the language that's used when they go to tell a story because they see it as the most efficient way to tell that story. When you allow yourself to dwell, which means... So the two words I use are inhabit and embody. So you inhabit the landscape of the story in your own memory. So you see it around you and you embody, you inhabit, your, you, you go back to your body at that time, you're standing beside that guy. Yeah. So you, you don't have to tell us the temperature of the air and the, where the sun was and if the door was closed. You don't have to tell us all of that. But what happens as you dwell is that it starts to come through. So the act of transmission that happens when you're telling from being inside the moment is so different to the act of transmission, if it is even that, when you tell it from above. So oh, yeah. you tell it from above and you're just observing it as if it's, I'm going to do this teaching story. And it's often something I have to, <laughs> I have to sort of convince people not to do when they say, I have wisdom. I'm going to tell you didn't do that. You just went into the memory and it's incredibly powerful. And we've been doing that for, I mean, some people say we've been doing that for a hundred thousand years yeah. and it goes 
you know, out the mouth and in through the ear and it gets, and that knowledge then gets distilled and all of the feelings get distilled slowly, like Angus said earlier, over time. Yeah. And it's a bigger space. We occupy, a, and it's a third space, right? There's you, there's yeah. me, and then there's the space between us. It's, um, you called it the, the theater of the mind. I call it cinema of the mind where it activates that imagination, but it's a collective space. Yeah. It's a collective imagining because I'll never meet that guy. I'll never be in that situation. And yet I just experienced it. And I had the, my brain, my, you know, all of our brilliant brains trigger all these things that make us feel, and you'll say it better than me, Angus, because you're the neuroscientist, but it makes us feel physically and emotionally and psychologically a bunch of things we couldn't possibly be feeling. Yeah. And that's that incredible superpower underneath. Yeah. Angus? Well, I mean, I can't say it any better than that, but just to back up what Claire said, I mean, Preston, you went back across. Yeah. You crossed the threshold while telling the story. That's right. You went back from your ordinary life into the extraordinary moments. Yeah. And then you pulled us into the extraordinary moments. Yeah. And we felt that movement. And I think that just illustrates the power of the story in that moment. The fact that you were able to take us across that threshold. And to what Claire said, not only have we been doing this for 100,000 years, we've probably been doing this for 300,000 years, I would say, as a species. And it probably goes back before that, I would guess, maybe a million years or or, or more before even humans, because that is that power to connect us to these spaces in memory that are actually go beyond memory and can become timeless in that moment again and can be reborn and can live. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to get us to our our final question, which I'm going to ask Claire, and then sort of open it up to both of your closing thoughts. This is I could talk about this for all day, quite honestly, but I want I want to respect people's time. But one of the things, Claire, when I first met you, and one of the first stories I heard from you was, and while you'll tell many stories, what I have always admired about you is your ability to recall, investigate, explore, and maintain the traditional Irish fairy stories. But while those are extraordinary to me, what was also extraordinary to me is that you had to give a little bit of a preface, which is to say, these stories will not follow the traditional stories that you're used to, where there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, where there's a conclusion and a moral to the story. These were built and taught at a time where they were designed to do different things. And you may find them a little harsh, a little violent, a little abrupt, right? But you have to understand that they weren't written for this time and this place to communicate what we think is important. They were designed to communicate things of their time. And I wanted to just give you a minute to sort of help bridge us a little bit back to that time of these words that we've forgotten, of these stories that we've forgotten, and maybe some of the anachronistic or things that have that no longer exist in our world that we no longer remember, but that stories help us maybe understand that there are things that we've forgotten. And I'll just, I'll leave it at that and just let you respond in the way that you will. When you say the words Irish and fairies to people nowadays, depending on which country you're in, you a certain set of images and expectations arise. Yeah. And some of it comes from the 1900s and the 1800s and the kind of reduced idea of these little beings and stuff. So I often have to preface it to try and get people away from that set of expectations. What I find fascinating about Irish folklore is its bizarreness. So 
so all cultures around the world have otherworldly beings. And the Irish fairies, they some say, are descended from the gods. And that's where all their power comes in from. But they also, they operate as a series of warnings. So, you know, I remember being on the Aran Islands and I've been brought over to entertain some tourists. And when all the tourists went home, it was just me and the islanders, which I knew was an extraordinary situation to be in. And they all looked at me and they said, so do you know any scary stories or some dark stories or something like that and I just they said do you know any ghost stories and I said no because I, I knew I was in a room with far better storytellers than me yeah so I said do you and then I sat back yes and what unfolded was a series of gorgeous stories and really what they were about present was you don't walk this path at this time of night. Yeah. You build your house here. The dead are going to walk through your kitchen. Like really strange stuff. And when you live in Ireland, it makes sense because it's a connection to the mystery of the other world. So when Angus was saying about hundreds of thousands of years ago, the other world wasn't very far away. It was right there. And I actually think it's always right there. I don't think it's that far away from it. It's just that we're now distracted by other things. So the stories in Ireland, if I hope I'm explaining this well, they're outlining the other world being right there. So there's things that happen that don't make sense. There's there's creatures and transformations and shapeshifters that slip in and out, and it's perfectly acceptable. Like it's a very famous quote about a woman who's asked about fairies and you know because because of Christianity and so so the mythology and the and the religion live side by side for a really long time. And somebody asked her if she believed in fairies, and she said, "Oh no 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 no, I don't believe in fairies." but I know they exist. And this paradox <laughs> of supernatural, not supernatural, but otherworldly and yeah. this worldly coexisting side by side is the energy of Irish folklore. And it's this acceptance that strange, bizarre and absurd things are there all the time. Yeah. And you best just get on board with it. <laughs> Do you think that answers your question? It does indeed. I, Oh, this is fantastic. I'm going to wrap up and open it up to your final thoughts, but I will say one odd thing that I, I love to tease my uh, young nieces and nephews or children around. And I will often say to them, do you all believe in dinosaurs? And if you ask an eight-year-old boy, if he believes in dinosaurs, he'll actually tell you the names of all the dinosaurs. And I'll say, do you believe in dragons? And they'll say, well, I know. I mean, they're cool, but they're just a myth. And I was like, really? And I was like, how would you know? I mean, there's these great big bones in the ground, right? And you're labeling them dinosaurs because the scientists told you, but every culture in the world has a myth about dragons. And so not every myth and every culture has a myth about dinosaurs. So who's right in this and how would you know? And I do it, one, just to, to annoy the parents, but which is worthy in and of itself, but also because of this idea, which brings us back to Angus, which is to install wonder, right? Don't get so fixed that you know the truth of a thing. Whether there's dinosaurs and dragons, I'm not going to debate you, but I will say there's no way we're ever going to be sure. And I think that lack of surety fills me with a certain amount of mischievous hope right? Which I think is just key in the world. And so with that, I'll just open it up to any closing thoughts first with you, Angus, and then and then you, Claire. Yeah, life isn't just about truth. Life is about possibility. Yeah. It's what could be. And that's what stories are at their most fundamental level. It's the imagination. It's not just what is, but what can happen. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, 
what our ideas about stories and all those things, that's all wonderful. But the most important thing is that anyone listening to this takes that step of storytelling in their own life and makes time for someone else to tell their stories, create spaces where other people can tell their stories and do that brave thing that Preston just did and tell the story you haven't told before. Because when you do that, it not only helps you, it empowers everyone around you to tell the stories that they haven't told before. And that's where the real secrets, that's where the real monsters, but also the real myths lie. That's awesome. Thank you, Angus. And thank you for coming today. And Claire? I want to read something because this writer, he's so beautiful. He comes from an oral tradition. And there's there's only a handful of writers in the world that can read like an oral they read the way an oral storyteller sounds, and Ben Oakley is one of them. So the, this is my closing thought. It's not mine, it's his. He's one of my he's one of my teachers. Ben Oakley, uh, it's the book of essays called A Way of Being Free. And this one's The Joys of Storytelling Three. It is easy to forget how mysterious and mighty stories are. They do their work in silence, invisibly. They work with all the internal materials of the mind and self. They become part of you while changing you. Beware the stories you read or tell. Subtly, at night, beneath the waters of consciousness, they are altering your world. Yeah. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming. And uh, I guess I'll close in the way that I started, which is to say that right now, somewhere, is a medical student getting ready to go to their first residency, a firefighter getting ready to go to their first fire, an FBI agent who's trying on a gun for the first time, and all of them in their own way are terrified. They don't know what they're supposed to do or say or look like. And those of you in this audience listening to this now have within you the ability to tell a story that could help you help them. But because they are of service to us, it is actually a selfish act. Because when we are in service to those who are in service to us, the whole place gets a little bit better. And I hope that after listening to this, you recognize that it's something as little as you sharing the story of an experience that you had that might change them and accelerate their ability to help someone else. So with that, I want to thank you again for listening into the MCTI Teamcast. I want to thank both Angus and Claire, and we'll see you next time. Thank you again for listening to our Teamcast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.